our live Bible Q&A here on Bible Quest Tuesday's show. Yeah, we're broadcasting live from two sources. One is from Stephen's Facebook page, and the other is from the BibleQuest.org app. <clears throat> Excuse me. And today we're discussing questions from you in the audience. And so we want to know what's on your mind, so please send us your questions. And you do that two different ways. If you're watching us from Facebook, use the comment box on that Facebook page. If you've joined us using the BibleQuest.org app, you can call in by clicking the little hand icon or texting your questions using the Q&A window. I just want to make sure everything is being recorded and we're broadcasting. I think we are. Okay. Uh, so let me welcome our panelists. Scott Smeltzer is joining us from Gettysburg. Hi, Scott, but I don't think we see you. I have never looked better. I forgot my camera. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're glad you joined us and glad that you're here with, with or without your camera. Stephen also is joining us from Gettysburg. Hi, Stephen. Hey, welcome, everybody. And Jeff Smeltzer joining us from Exton, Pennsylvania. Hi, Jeff. Good afternoon, everyone. And I'm your host, Drew DeGrauder from Honesdale. Now, we, we have a few questions that we didn't get to last week, and, but we're going to address them today. And as we are discussing them, please don't hesitate to submit your follow-up questions or even other questions. Because like I said, there's an open discussion and we do want to hear from you. So let's begin with the first question that we want to address today. And this is from Robert. How do we reconcile the violence of the Old Testament with the peace found in the New Testament? Scott, you want to start that one off? Well, let's, let's look at that in two parts, that there are some differences in the Old Covenant and New Covenant, and talk about how that relates to it, but then talk about uh, the consistency through both and the misconceptions that we can sometimes get by looking at just some superficial things. Uh, but let's start with just looking at the reality. Why do we see uh, panelists some some of the differences that we see in the nature of the two covenants. Or, or, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I missed the question where you're going. I thought you're asking, Scott, say the question again, please. I'm sorry. Okay. In a minute, <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, the, the consistency of God's character and and judgment and, and, and some harsh realities in the New Testament. But first, to just acknowledge, for instance, in the Old Covenant, what were the Israelites told to do the Amalekites? Yeah, utterly destroy them, women and children and everything. Yeah, whereas Philip went and preached to the Samaritans. So, 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 so at first, you just want some evidence that, in fact, we do tend to see violence in the Old Testament to a degree we don't in the New Testament. And why? Okay, all right, all right, I'm with you. Uh, you, you know, Deuteronomy chapter 20, we see a discussion of, the uh, approach the Israelites were to take to cities that were within the promised land, and they were not even to allow them the opportunity for a peace treaty. They were to utterly destroy them, though they could maybe make peace with the nations outside of the land. Uh, so we see that. Um, there was a thought that just before we came on the webcast, I had, I, I can't think of what it is right now. I'm, I'm going blank. I well, what are, what's, what's some of the differences between the nature of the two covenants? What was the kingdom like in the Old Testament? It was the Old Testament. Yeah, you had a physical outward kingdom with a physical nation uh, that had its own laws. It was distinct from the nations around it. And as an independent nation, there was also the land struggle and uh, competition for resources and things like that. And so God 
in giving the law of Moses was not only giving spiritual rules and rules for approaching him, but he was also regulating social things. Uh, he was regulating uh, social justice questions and even uh, how Israel was going to interact with other nations, uh, which when we come to the New Testament, we've got a spiritual nation, uh, a spiritual priesthood, um, that the, the physical realities of the Old Testament are meant to point to spiritual truths that we find in the church in the New Testament. So like in Luke 17, when Jesus says, when he's asked, when is the kingdom coming? He says, the kingdom, it doesn't come with observation. You don't say, lo, here it is, or there it is, Luke 17, 20 through 21. But in the Old Testament, could you point to the kingdom? Yeah, you could. You could actually say, here are the physical boundaries of the kingdom of 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 Israel. Um, you could say, here are, here are the people. You could talk about it geographically. You could talk about it ethnically. Yeah. And so during that time, give a couple of examples. Did God use the Israelites to bring military judgment upon evil nations? And to follow up, did God use other nations to bring that type of judgment on Israel? So just real quick before we answer that, somebody is sharing a screen. I don't think they mean to be sharing right now. We've got 1 Corinthians 11 on screen, and that's not what we're talking about right now. But yes, the, the Old Testament Israelites were supposed to purge out the Canaanites out of the land of Canaan because uh, God did not want the idolatrous influence uh, to affect the Israelites. Yeah, and so you have the physical blessings and cursings there in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. If you if you follow my statutes, here are the blessings you'll receive nationally. If you don't, let me let me just say we've got a live question from Randy uh, on our Facebook comments, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Randy, thank you for your question. Yes, thank you for that. All right, now let's switch over to acknowledging that there's a difference in the nature of the two kingdoms and and some things in the covenants. What about the idea that that some people get that in the Old Testament? If you sinned, God would strike you dead, earth would swallow you up, you'd be burned up, or somebody would stone you or chop off your head. Whereas in the New Testament, everything is forgiven, everything's peaceful, uh, everything's fine, and we don't have to worry about any wrath of God anymore. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, one of the things that happens is Paul goes back and he talks about some of the incidents where there was a lot of wrath and violence in the Old Testament. His point isn't so much to talk about the wrath and violence for its own sake, but he's talking about the Israelites who were chosen to be God's people. They were in a fashion baptized and had a spiritual meal, kind of like God's people today are baptized and eat the Lord's Supper. But they got out in the wilderness, and they ended up being destroyed in the wilderness. And he itemizes some particular incidents. One incident is when they, sat, uh, when they um, uh, committed fornication, described in Numbers 25, and uh, as a consequence, there were 20-something thousand people destroyed in, in, a, in a plague by God on that occasion. Another incident is when they were complaining against the Lord in Numbers 21, and God sent serpents among the people to bite them, and many of the people died as a result of that. And several of these incidents are mentioned, and then it says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10 in the New Testament, now these things happened unto them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages 
are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. So rather than, than arguing, look, the God of the Old Testament was a vengeful God, and the Old Testament was one kind of thing. We've got a different kind of thing today. Paul says that those Old Testament accounts of destruction and, and God's uh, killing so many people they were written as a lesson for us today, not that God is necessarily going to wipe out 20,000 people in one fell swoop here in Pennsylvania today, but there is a final judgment of God coming. So, Jeff, what you're saying is basically that the God that we read about in the Old Testament is in his nature the same as the God that we read about in the New Testament. Exactly. And First Corinthians 10 shows that to us because Paul references those Old Testament events and is making application to these Christians living in first century Corinth that, that don't make the same mistakes that they did and experience the same type of judgment, even That's though it may I'm not saying I'm not sure anybody life. can hear me. It looks like my connection has gone bad, but yes, good point. Yeah, we can hear you. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. I can't hear you. Yes, we can Steven. hear you. That's fine. Oh, you can't hear me at all right now? Yeah, yeah I, I can. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, if uh, I heard for some reason I'm cutting out, let me know. We okay. Very good. All right. A couple, couple good. more things on, on that. Uh, if, we, if we get the idea that in the Old Testament, boom, judgment, and in the New Testament, ah, mercy, and that's all there is, give me an example real quick. Can you think of somebody in the Old Testament who was bestowed an immense amount of mercy, much more merciful than most of us would be inclined to be. I'm thinking a lot of examples, but you've got somebody in mind. Let's go to the one you've got in mind. So we can face some rabbits. If our commander in chief was having an affair with an enlisted man's wife and impregnated her and arranged to have that man killed, uh, imagine how interested most of us would be in mercy. So that, <laughs> right. yes, David there would be a lot of mercy and forgiven. And then in the New Testament, do we ever see anybody struck dead in the New Testament presume? Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead because they lied about how much of the money that they had sold some land for, how much of that money they were giving. They lied and they were struck dead. Yeah. Oh. And lastly, before we move on to something else, there's a couple of verses in Hebrews that point out Listen, if it was important to obey the laws of the previous covenant, which was not the better covenant, how much more serious had we better take it to obey that of the new? Yeah. Yeah. Hebrews chapter two, beginning in verse one, the Hebrew writer says, therefore, we must pay. Now he's writing to Christians. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, and here he's talking about the Old Testament, the law of Moses, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And you bring up Hebrews, and, and this is a theme in Hebrews. We see it again in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, says something very similar. But I'm going to jump right over to Hebrews chapter 12, where there's this comparison of the Mount Sinai that the Israelites came to, and they were warned not to touch it or they would die, and it was right. shaking, there was fire and all of that. 
And then it says, we're not come to, to that physical mountain. We're come to another mountain. And I just want to read just a little bit, starting in verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escaped not, talking about the Old Testament, when they refused him that warned them on earth, much more shall not we escape who turn away from him that warns from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more will I make to tremble not the earth only, but also the heaven. And then he ends up this statement in verse uh, chapter 12, verse 29. He says, For our God is a consuming fire. Yeah. And that passage uh-huh. mentioned in Hebrews 10. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So we're offered peace. But if we reject peace, we're left with wrath. Stephen. Uh, let me just also say, we've, we've established pretty well, I think, that the God of the New Testament is also a God of wrath. But it's important also to note that some of the greatest statements about God's love, his forgiveness, his mercy, are found in the Old Testament. Just one verse, for instance, is Psalm 103, one of my favorite passages. Psalm 103, uh, starting in verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And this is just God's very nature. I think it's also notable that when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And we go to those, right? It says love is the, is the greatest commandment, right? Uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We love that. New Testament messages, right? Well, where was Jesus quoting from both times when he said love is the greatest commandment? Right. right. I, I, I want to I add something to the conversation about the peace versus old and new. And I think sometimes people that want to look at that the New Testament is just consisting of peace, or at least have that impression of it. Um, what do you think uh, about the Matthew 10, 34 through 39? So this is where Jesus says, I came not to send peace, but on earth, on earth but a sword. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah isn't, that, isn't that interesting? Um most people think that peace on earth is going to be among peace on everybody uh, between all human beings, but that's not the kind of peace Jesus brought. Now, now I think it's, it's good to look at that passage in connection with Romans 12. And what is it? Romans 12 verse 18, I think where it, Paul says, as much as in you lie, be at peace with all men. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the fact is, because of my faith, because I stand for what is right, there are going to be people who have, have no interest in being at peace with me. Right. Uh, but that 
had better not be my attitude. If there's a conflict, it had better not be I that create that conflict. I need to be reaching out with the gospel to other people in a peaceful way. Um, and if there's a problem, it's because of their own hearts and their own conduct. And let's clarify for uh, any that might have a question about it. In Matthew 10, did when Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, what kind of sword does Jesus mean? Does he mean a military sword? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And in fact, the rest of that context in the paragraph, it talks about that the true peace is really uh, between us and God. And this is talking about being faithful to him. And then, and then Paul talks about our weapons are not according to the flesh. This is over in the book of Ephesians and in 2 Corinthians 10, a uh, similar idea. And he says, our sword is the sword of the spirit. All right, let, Randy had a question uh, here. Yeah, before, Let's see what his question is. Yeah, what, what's that question? Before we get to the yeah. second question, go ahead, Stephen. Or, uh, well, I'm about to read Randy's question. Do you have something else, Drew? No, I was going to say, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, uh, so Randy's question, I'll pin it to the top of the comments here. It says, Paul greets those in Ephesus by saying, to the saints and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So my question is, is he talking to two different groups? one and this may be a good uh, question to pass to Jeff who just recently finished his commentary on Ephesians Jeff do you have a comment on that I don't have a commentary you guys have copies of it but I don't have so maybe you should read the answer there you go I, I uh, yeah I think that the the answer is it's the same people those who are the Saints are also those who are faithful in Christ Jesus um, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul has the same introduction for the saints and faithful brethren in Christ that are at Colossae. Maybe just an easy observation is it, it, if we tried to make it two different people, it's interesting that in, in one place we've got people who are saints and faithful brethren. And lo and behold, over here in this other place, we've got some people who are saints and some other people who are faithful brethren. It's, it's two different ways of describing the same people. They are saints, they are holy, set apart to God, and they are faithful and I don't know if this is perfectly parallel, but in the very next verse, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not too different. Too different. Being there's there. the God of Jesus and there's the Father of Jesus. Right, right. It's, it's the God and Father. It's two descriptions of the same being yeah. uh, there in verse 3 as well. All right. Before I get to the next question, though, I do want to put a plug in. You brought it up, Stephen, but Jeff's commentary on Ephesians is available do a search on it in amazon.com and Jeff, I'm sorry. I know you didn't want me to, you didn't ask me to do this, Jeff. I just figured I'm going to give you a little plug on your book. Thank you. <laughs> and even though you don't have a copy, everyone in the audience, you can get a copy even before Jeff gets his copy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> somebody, somebody please send me a copy. <laughs> yeah. The title of that is walk worthily. You can get it on Amazon. Um, All right. So, one comment also on the, those introductions, notice how Paul refers to himself, like in Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's not talking about three different people. It's three different descriptions of himself. Yeah, good point. And he does the same thing then with his audience. Well, we, we, we don't have it. Do we cover Randy's question? Did you cover it all? I think so. I think so. That was it. Um, did you have another one coming so, in from Facebook, Stephen? 
we do not have any other live questions at the moment. So if you're watching right now, uh, please feel free to chime in in the comments. Um, or if you are watching through the app, uh, the Q&A box there. Can, um, can we I have a, one more? Did you have something you need to get to? There, oh, no, go ahead, Jeff. One, one, a couple more quick comments on this idea of the God of our violence in the Old Testament, not just God of violence, but violence in the Old Testament, peace in the New Testament. Um, part of the problem, I think, is people today, we we have many people have a one dimensional view of God. And so when they see this God who is not only loving and kind and merciful, but also holy and just and able to be wrathful against that, which is evil. We talked, I think a couple of weeks ago about the idea of loving what is good requires hating what is evil. Um, and God does love his creation. And he hates that which would destroy his creation. So God, you could say, is multifaceted, maybe be kind of a modern way to say that. And, and we see that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that people have a one-dimensional concept of God. They, don't, they only see a God who is merciful and kind of lets everything go. He's, not, you know, he, he's just a good guy. Well, he is just a good guy, but goodness requires punishing what is evil, and they don't want that part of it. Well, anyway... You think about David and Solomon. David was a man of bloodshed, and Solomon's name means peace. And David was not to build the house of the Lord, which represents peace between man and God, as God can come and dwell amongst his creation, his creatures. But Solomon, who's a man of peace, does. Both of those ideas are in the Old Testament, uh, but they reflect both ideas, things that belong to God. The, the bloodshed is, is going to be God's judgment upon on certain things and, of course, his peace with those who are his. Yeah, good comment. I hadn't thought about that uh, particular contrast between David and Solomon. I was just actually reading that in my Hey, we've David got Bible. an anonymous question popped up. Um, when David numbered the people, one place says God incited him to do so, but another says Satan incited him. This is comparing Second Samuel, I believe it's Second Samuel twenty-four, and then First Chronicles. We we'll have to look that up, uh, but that's right. One says God, First Chronicles twenty-one. All right, good. So God was angry with him for doing it. Is then the the rest of the question that is asked. So what really happened? Was it God? Was it Satan? Why was God angry with him? That's a good question. So that, yeah, that way, well, the way I've understood that in the past is that God will use Satan to even accomplish his will at times. I think we see that one of the clearest places we see it is in the book of Job, where Job requests an opportunity to stretch out his hand against Satan, and the Lord grants him. You got that, that backwards. Ability. You mean oh, sorry. Satan requests? Yes, that's what I meant to say. Okay. I may have switched that around. Sorry about that. Thank you. Uh, Satan is asking God, does, does Job serve God for nothing? If you take away his possessions, if you take away his health, he'll curse you to your face. And that's kind of the, the premise of the book is, is Job going to be faithful to God, even if God takes away everything he has? We may see something similar in 1 Kings 22, where there's a lying spirit described. And, and I think in, in, in reality, we see it in Judas when uh, Satan entered into Judas, and yet God is using Judas um, to accomplish 
what is necessary for our salvation, the sacrifice of Jesus. So that's a good point, Stephen. I think that's pertinent here in this co- comparison of first of Second Samuel twenty four and First Chronicles twenty one. Um, God does this. Uh, Satan does this. Satan has his own agenda, no doubt. Satan's not thinking, "Oh, I'm going to help God out here." Satan has his own misguided agenda, but God can make use of Satan's misguided agenda. And the fact is, um, God is um, angry with David. And I think when we get to that part, we can read through the text a little bit. I think that the point is well put by Joab when David wants the number of the people. That's David saying, how strong am I putting his confidence in his, the number of his military his, his military might. And Joab sees that that's a mistake. David doesn't need to go there. He just needs to trust the Lord. So I'll just read this, verse uh, 2 and 3 of First Chronicles 21. David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring the word that I may know their number. And Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? And then God, verse 7, it says God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. And so I think what we have here is a case of David being, looking at things from an earthly point of view, maybe being puffed up with a little bit of pride in the 30th Psalm. David mentions that as a problem he had experienced at some point, and uh, God is displeased with it. Yeah, and, and I think it's also worth noting that uh, God can use Satan and, and Satan's temptation, his desire to make us fall. He can use that for his purposes. Uh, he also does the same thing with the nations in the Old Testament. The king of Assyria, the king of Babylon, uh, their selfish motives in wanting to conquer and destroy and pillage, uh, he uses them. They don't think they're serving God, right. but God uses their wicked motives for his purposes and then goes on to punish them for their wickedness. Exactly. Isaiah 10 describes exactly what you're saying. Let me read Psalm 30, verses 6 and 7. Here I think we have David kind of acknowledging the attitude that we see in First uh, Chronicles 21. David says, Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. Why is he saying I'll never be moved? Because he's prosperous. So what's his confidence in? His prosperity. Then verse 7 is the counterpoint. O Lord, by thy favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide thy face. Why did God hide his face? I was dismayed to thee, O Lord, I called. So David turns around and he calls to the Lord when he realizes the Lord has hidden his face from him. Why had the Lord hidden his face from David? Because David was lapsing into this taking confidence in his own prosperity. And then he comes to his senses and realizes, no, it's the Lord that makes me stand, and he calls on the Lord. Yeah, good point. I know there's a couple of more questions we want to try to get to today. I don't think we have any more live questions at the moment. Thank you, uh, Randy and the other viewer who submitted that last question. Let me get to that uh, that second question then, a time that's running on. And um, I'll be interested to see how you're going to deal with this one, guys. Is Jesus the man in Daniel 3 and Daniel 10? And the, the, Daniel 3. The, yeah, the, the questions there, Daniel chapter 3 is the story, we call it the story of the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
uh, will not bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's golden image that he set up. And so in his wrath, he commands the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it was, throws the three of them into the furnace. The fire, the heat from the fire kills the guards who threw them in. And when the king approaches the fire, uh, he sees four men. And he describes the fourth one. It says the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods, is the way the ESV renders that. That's Daniel 3, 25. So the question is, who is that fourth being uh, that he describes, the king describes, it's like a son of the gods. I think some translations put it, he's like the son of God. Um, so the question is, who, who is that? And I think short answer is, well, the text, it doesn't explicitly tell us who that is. What's the one in, in, in Daniel 10? So Daniel 10, you have a description of uh, somebody who's obviously a supernatural being speaking to Daniel. And um, I'll read the description real quickly here. It's Daniel chapter 10, verse Five and following, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded up with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. And Daniel is quite intimidated by this figure. There are Understandable. Yeah. <laughs> There are some similarities between the description of this individual and the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 when John sees him as to whether we're supposed to think this is, is Jesus or not. I don't, I don't know. And Again, the text in, just in the book of Revelation, similarities don't necessarily mean identity. Right. That is, that's a good point there. The, the, the book of Revelation goes back and pulls out all of the imagery of the Old Testament, reuses it. You have Gog of Magog and Gog and Magog. In Ezekiel chapter 38, you've got Gog of uh, Gog. Now I'm trying to remember which is which. I think in Ezekiel 38, it's Gog and Magog. And then in Revelation 20, uh, 20 you've got Gog and Magog. And, I believe that's correct. And they, they don't seem to be this. They don't mean seem to mean the same thing. There may be some similarities, but it seems that that imagery is used in different ways. The, we the, have a live question from Aaron Lawson on our Facebook uh, feed. We'll get to that in just a moment. Thank you for your question, Aaron. Go ahead, Scott. Oh, that's all right. Go ahead. Let's go to the next question. Well, hold on before you get off of that question. It, it's clear that we don't know. Right. And that's because there is no further description. I mean, we, we could guess, right, and make assumptions, but really we don't know. Yes. And, I mean, it would be cool if that is Jesus uh, in those passages, but I'm not going to try to uh, draw a hard line on those passages. I think they are somewhat open to interpretation. It's kind of like so we all had a thorn in the flesh, but we don't know for sure what it was. Although I think it would be cool to get to heaven and ask him, and he goes, I had a thorn in my flesh. <laughs> 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 that's what i said that's what i meant <laughs> it's what it means it means what it says there you go what's the question coming in from aaron oh okay excuse me aaron uh clarified here he says uh in genesis 6 and verse 2 uh he just wrote genesis 6 2 and then said oh i was just referencing the sons of god 
um, that it is true that there's a question about the term, the sons of God in Genesis six too. Um, and I'm not sure. I think Aaron may have been connecting that with uh, Daniel three is like a son, a son of the gods uh, there. In other um, words, I think the point there would be that um, that phrase does not necessarily mean the son of God, Jesus Christ. Yes. Yes. Very good. Thank you. That, that seems to fit. Let's just go through a note. Who are some different places and ways in which the phrase son of God is used? And to start with, we have in the genealogy in Luke, it ends with who is the son of God? Wouldn't that be Adam? Yeah, but it might not use the phrase. I might be misremembering it. Y'all touch on some other son of God phrases while I look that one up. Luke 3, you're talking about? I can pull that one up real quickly. So Luke chapter 3, and I'm just going to go right here to the end of the genealogy where it says in verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay, yeah. Now, another four, the word son is, is implied there. It's, 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 it's added by the translators, but going through the genealogy, that's clearly the... Right. And then we have mm -hmm. angels are called uh, uh, in Job chapter 1, when the sons of God present themselves for God seem to be angelic beings. Stephen had one. Uh, I was going to say Job 38 as well. Uh, before the earth has been made, uh, it describes the morning stars singing together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, likely angelic beings there as well. Romans 14, as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Yeah. Oh, I was going to go there with that. I have it in Romans 8. 14. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, that's what I'm, that, yeah, I think I just said Romans 14, but yeah, Romans 8, 14. 8, 14 yeah. Yeah, these are uh, really along good. With that uh, in Galatians 4, that we've been adopted as sons. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, we have a, a next question, which was submitted, um, I believe. Um, well, let's get to, the, to that question real quick. Yeah, that um, would be the third one, right? Yeah, uh, let me that. see here. Yeah. yeah, so in the third question um, is essentially, it, are some children born as children of Satan and others are born as children of God? Um, sometimes uh, we ask because of the way that people turn out, uh, well, you know, was this person just destined to become that way from their birth? And one passage I think is helpful for us in that uh, is in Genesis chapter four with Cain and Abel, uh, the first pair of siblings in the scripture. And one of them turns out well, and one of them doesn't. But I think it's very interesting to note the Lord's conversation with Cain before he kills Abel. He's mad with Abel. Uh, he's jealous that the Lord accepted Abel's offering and did not accept his offering. But look with me in Genesis chapter 4, uh, starting in verse uh, 5. Uh, it says, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not know, do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Uh, this, I think, 
is one of the clearest examples we have in the scriptures of temptation and free will, where you have two children who were born, and I don't believe the text shows that from their birth they were any different from one another. But at this point in their life, Cain reaches a crossroads. He has not done well in whatever way that was with his sacrifice. The Lord has not accepted his sacrifice. And Cain can choose to do one of two things. Cain can choose to do well. The Lord says, that's an option for you. If you do well, your countenance will be lifted up. You won't be mad anymore. But if you don't do well, sin's crouching right there at the door, and it wants to devour you, and you must rule over it. Yeah, that's such an important point. God doesn't say to Cain, well, no wonder you killed him. You're a son of the devil. You were born that way. You'll never be anything different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's touch on this. There are some people in the Bible who it was designated what they were going to be before their birth. Jeremiah, chosen to be a prophet, you know, from the womb. Galatians chapter 1, we have uh, Paul saying, um, which verse is it? Yeah. Oh, and we also have a live question here from John Pollard. Thanks, John, for your question. We'll get to that in just a minute. Go okay, ahead, Scott. I'll wrap this up real quick. Paul called from the womb uh, John the Baptist, but that didn't take the fact that God picked them for a task didn't take away their personal responsibility because Paul himself, recognizing that he had been a chosen vessel, he still realized his responsibility because what did he say in 1 Corinthians 9? I buffet my own body and bring it into subjection, lest after preaching to others, which he had been chosen to do, he himself might be what? Lost. Disqualified. Make sure that didn't happen. All right, let's go to this other question. One more thing on that is just, it's easy, I think, intellectually to answer this from the scriptures and say, all of us are the product of our free will choices. Uh, some people make good choices. Some of us make bad choices. All of us make some of each. Uh, do some good things, some bad things, some things. <laughs> but um, it's really emotionally difficult when people that we really love make decisions that ruin their lives. Uh, that That's tough. And sometimes we want to try to explain away, oh, well, maybe they weren't really responsible for that. They were a bad scene. Right. And, and I just think we have to be so careful. There's, human beings are certainly very complicated, but I really believe the scriptures teach that we are accountable for our decisions and actions. Real quickly, Deuteronomy 139, who got to go into the land? The little ones that didn't know the difference between good and evil. Jesus who does he, says, let the little children come to me for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. But as we grow, we do, like Cain, choose to sin. And now what we need is to be born again. Jesus said, unless we are born again, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. So our, the problem is not our first birth. It's whether or not we subject ourselves to the second birth. Yes, good point. And a beautiful truth in Scripture is even if someone has gone about as far as you can go down the path of wickedness, has chosen evil and wickedness, the Lord is always extending to them the opportunity to repent and to come back. And they always have the ability to, to do that. And that's an important thing to remember uh, when we're in the pain of uh, seeing the consequences of someone's sin. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to. Repent. That's right. 
Well, we've got a couple of questions in just five minutes left. Uh, one is on our uh, Facebook page, and one is in the Q&A box. Well, the Facebook uh, page is first, though, before the Q&A one, though. Okay, sounds good. So uh, John Pollard asks... Well, as I say, the, the one at the Q&A is related to the previous question, so I don't know which one you want to take. Oh, you're right. You're right. Okay, let's go timing. ahead. Go ahead and, go ahead and uh, address that one, Stephen. Let me just say real quick to John Pollard's question. We may not get to it today, but Stephen, you're going to be doing the webcast with me tomorrow afternoon. We can talk about John Pollard's question tomorrow afternoon. Okay, sounds good. All right, so our, our Q&A box, uh, Randy Berry asks, uh, to piggyback on those who are chosen to be sons of Satan, were those people also chosen to be false teachers in Jude? Well, I think in general, the same answer would, would apply, that uh, the Lord is not forcing people uh, down a certain path. He uses people's choices for his glory and is able in his foreknowledge many times to know uh, who those are who will have hard hearts. Uh, we see there, some passages like that. And there is not a shortage of hard-hearted people for purposes that involve a hard-hearted person. No. Yes, indeed. I'm trying to remember the specific verse in Jude um, that uh, talks about... Uh, there being something known ahead of time on that. Not from long ago, but that's, that's a reference of when they're written up, not that they were destined as I recall. Um, okay. Actually, actually for certain people in verse four, for certain people crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Um, if you, let me just throw this out real quick. This may actually, and it depends on if you think Jude was written first or second Peter written first. But if Second Peter was written first, this may actually be a reference to what you read in Second Peter. Now you might say, "What well, said long ago?" It's the same word as when Pilate sent and to check whether he had was whether he'd been dead very long. Um, so it doesn't necessarily involve a long time. You look over at Second Peter, and it predicted. It said there will be false teachers bringing in uh, destructive heresies. And then in Jude, it says these people are here that have been designated from long ago. And again, since that long ago can be used in the Gospels of a matter of minutes or hours, um, it, it, doesn't, it, it could easily be from a previous writing. Oh, so you're saying that Jude may be referencing Second Peter 2? Gotcha. Okay. I haven't heard that before. No, I haven't heard that one either. That was uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. I'm not saying it is, but it may be. All right. Well, we are uh, just about out of time here. And thanks to everybody for your questions today. And um, John Pollard asks a good question here about uh, specifically um, where do, where do faithful people go when they pass away? And, um, Probably Luke, Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus brings up some questions uh, as to specifically what happens when we die. Uh, so what sort of things we could observe about that, but we are about out of time. So thank you for your question, John. I'm sorry we don't have time to answer that fully today. But we will answer. We will pick that up next week. Yes, and we still have a couple more questions that have been submitted in past weeks that we have not had time to get to yet. So thank you. 
To yeah. those of you who submitted questions, we do have them written down. Uh, we're getting to them, and we're trying to do our best to give as uh, thorough answers as we can on the air and uh, just to get to those in, in good time. So thanks again to everybody for tuning in today uh, for your live questions and for uh, the other questions you submitted. And we hope that, uh, as always, we just need to keep going back to the Bible. Uh, the four of us certainly do not have all the answers, but we want to keep going back uh, to the one who does and to keep uh, humbly studying his word, uh, making conclusions where we can, uh, leaving questions open where we need to be careful and uh, just seeking to please God in all these things. Very good, Stephen. Thanks an awful lot. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll wrap up, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks, guys. Bye.